Hello, and welcome to The Broad Chronicles, a women's history podcast celebrating the lives and stories of remarkable women in the world. I'm Kayla, and in this episode, we're kicking off the show. I thought long and hard about who my first woman would be that I would cover for my first episode. It should be someone well-known, of course, to generate interest. After much deliberation, my brain tried to settle on the well-known and oft-reported Victoria. She's an excellent choice. Longevity, legacy, dynasty, she has a whole era name for herself. But her very existence is made all the more striking by panning the camera out on the scene just a bit. You see, the thing with me being the narrator of a story is that I can't stand for a story to be told without any context. Victoria is a striking figure in her own right, as I've told you. But Victoria would be nothing without the tragedy that was her cousin Charlotte. And so I panned the camera out a few decades and explored Charlotte's life. Many a biography of Victoria starts with a brief mention of Charlotte and her death and what that meant for Great Britain. But Charlotte lived a whole life before that. She was apparently very witty, rebellious, and well-liked by everyone around her. I didn't want Charlotte to be a footnote in my own telling. So for the first episode, we will explore the life of Charlotte Augusta of Wales. We have to start at the beginning, and that begins with her parents. Charlotte's father was, at the time of her birth, George, Prince of Wales. He would later become the Prince Regent and then, finally, George IV. George was the ultimate playboy prince. Unlike his frugal and conservative father, George kept company with a more liberal set. He also loved to throw a good party, spend money on women, wine, and gambling, living a life that fully embraced the philosophy of treat yourself. The problem was that his income could not keep up with his output, and Prince George managed to rack up a staggering amount of debt in his 20s. Prince George also loved to be in love, and then promptly cast off women when they no longer entertained him. One of his significant attachments was to a woman by the name of Maria Fitzherbert a twice-widowed Catholic commoner. Now, we won't shame anyone on the grounds of marital status or religion in the show, but for the sake of context, England had a rocky few centuries of relations between the Catholics and the Protestants, and by the 1780s, a few laws had gone into place that basically kept Catholics from being anywhere near the throne. The relationship with Maria Fitzherbert was doomed from the start, but that didn't stop George from having a super-secret wedding and then having a super-secret wife. A super-secret Catholic wife. He ignored the screeching break sound that came with the Act of Settlement of 1701 and the Royal Marriages Act of 1772. The Act of Settlement kept the spouse of a Catholic from succeeding to the throne, and the Marriages Act forbade members of the royal family from marrying without the king's consent. This was a matter George III would not play ball on. And this won't come up until later, Prince George wasn't the only one of his siblings to have a close relationship with a woman without royal consent. Prince George was able to keep up the charade for a while, but eventually the debts he racked up would catch up with him. He was bailed out once in the late 1780s by Parliament, but he didn't change his ways, and by the early 1790s he found himself up to his eyeballs in debt and in need of a new strategy. 
His best bet was to give the king and parliament something they and possibly all of England wanted, an heir. You see, despite having 15 children, 13 of whom lived to adulthood by the 1790s, there were no legitimate heirs to the throne past George's generation. It was the only trump card the prince had to play, and so he agreed to get married. So we're going to put a pin in George's life and hop over to the German principalities, which are not yet the nation of Germany, and meet Caroline of Brunswick. So enter Caroline of Brunswick. Caroline had a difficult early childhood. Her parents fought constantly, often putting her in the middle of their disagreements. Her father was openly disloyal to her mother, and that caused much tension in their household. She was educated by a series of governesses, but even her father would admit that her learning was a bit lacking, which was in contrast to Prince George, who was a stellar student and learned quickly. Caroline was also heavily sheltered as a child. Her parents kept her out of the company of men, rarely letting her attend social gatherings, and even flat out refusing to let her dance. Things were so strict in that family that in one instance where she was kept home from a ball, Caroline feigned a severe illness so her parents would leave the party and come see her, then told her parents she was in labor, and when the midwife arrived, she stopped faking and asked if she would be kept from any parties in the future. The proposal from Prince George, her cousin, arrived in 1794 and the plans for them to marry moved ahead, despite the fact that they had never met in person. In hindsight, the whole endeavor seems a little like a recipe for disaster. And also, given how things turned out, it was a major disaster. The prince's envoy, Lord Malmesbury, set off for Brunswick to bring the bride to her new home, accompanied by her mother. A fact that's usually commented on right here is some of the diary entries of Lord Malmesbury and his impressions of the princess. His entries start out polite enough, complimenting her appearance and her demeanor, but the more he got to know her, the more his attitude seemed to change. He is quoted in Becoming Victoria as initially saying that Prince Caroline had a pretty face, not expressive of softness, her figure not graceful, fine eyes, good hands, tolerable teeth, but going, fair hair and light brown eyes, and a good bust. By the time he got to know her more during his time in Brunswick, he would say, I recommend perfect silence on all subjects for six months after her arrival, and that with a steady man, she would do vastly well, but with one of a different description, there are great risks. This seems to imply to me that there was some concern from the beginning about a clash of personalities between Princess Caroline and Prince George from the beginning. Even her father expressed concern with the temperament of the couple, saying she wasn't stupid but lacked judgment. Oh boy, was her dad right. In the end, the marriage became a disastrous affair, beginning the moment the couple met. There was the matter of Prince George's current mistress, Lady Jersey, inserting herself into the situation and making things difficult for Caroline, and being present for a good portion of the royal couple's first meeting. The ultimate insult to Caroline, I believe, is Prince George, upon seeing her for the first time, requesting a glass of brandy. He was allegedly offended by her appearance and her bodily odor. but. Obviously, George himself is no catch. At dinner that night, Caroline took frequent opportunities to snipe at Lady Jersey. I don't blame her personally. 
if my future husband's current side piece was suddenly one of my ladies-in-waiting and fighting me for his attention the very first time we met, I'd have some choice words myself. At any rate, it didn't endear her to her new husband at all. But the wedding went forward. They were married, and about nine months and a couple days later, their one and only child, Charlotte Augusta of Wales, was born to much rejoicing in the country. It did nothing for the marriage of her parents, and she would end up being their only child. I'm just going to take a brief sidebar here for a second and say that if you have divorced parents or have been the child in the middle of two parents that do not get along with each other, you may be triggered by the first 10 or 15 years of Charlotte's life because it reads just like any other only child in the middle of fighting parents situation does. Princess Charlotte was born in her father's home at Carlton House, where she would spend much of her childhood. She was christened Charlotte Augusta after both her grandmothers, who were also her godmothers, Charlotte being her father's mother and Augusta being her mother's mother. From the first days of her life, Charlotte became a constant pawn in the arguments, fights, and insults between her parents. I find it funny that Princess Caroline would subject her own daughter to that reality when she grew up that way herself, but on the other hand, growing up in that situation, that's probably all you've known and probably all that's normal to you. Within three days of the birth of his daughter, George had a new will written. He left a majority of his worldly goods to his mistress, custody of his daughter to his parents, and included explicit instructions that his wife have no direct input into the raising of their daughter. And to add insult to injury, George only left his wife one shilling. When Parliament refused to give George more money after the birth of his daughter, he turned around and vented that frustration in the direction of his wife. He refused to let her see the baby more than once a day, and when she was allowed to visit, it had to be under supervision of a nurse or a governess. Caroline managed to get around this and to see Charlotte by befriending one of the women on her daughter's staff, however. The woman would open the door to the nursery when no one was looking. It's not like it mattered if anyone was looking most of the time, though. George and Caroline had rooms on the same floor of the house, but he rarely ever went by the nursery. So Caroline began pushing her luck with her visits and even began taking little Charlotte out for drives in the carriage around London. As Charlotte grew up, her parents continued to bicker and brought her in the middle of their arguments and even went as far as asking the king and queen to pick sides. There were frequent changes in the nursery staff in Charlotte's first year, and when Charlotte was not quite two years old, her mother moved out of the house and into her own home. She had to leave little Charlotte behind because the law at the time gave custody of minor children to the father. I'm just going to say in general, at this time, it was very common for everything the wife owned to be property of the husband while they were married. That included custody of the children and frequently any property that she brought into the marriage with her. Being continually tugged between two fighting parents has serious impacts on small children, and it seems this was true for little Charlotte. She was known for being a beautiful, bright, charming little girl with blonde curls and blue eyes. When she was receiving attention, she was entertaining, frequently dancing and singing for guests or even her grandfather, King George III, 
who had a very soft spot for the little girl. But imagine being an only child living in a large house with a staff caring for you and rarely seeing your parents. Your mother and father are rarely around, and there are no siblings, cousins, or friends around. It's no wonder that eventually sweet Charlotte developed a reputation for having a hairpin trigger. I'm also going to add right here that Charlotte seems to have inherited the worst qualities of both of her parents. In further parent of the year fashion, Prince George and Princess Caroline did little to stop the wash of instability in their daughter's lives. Her governess, Lady Eglin, who Charlotte called Dear Eggie, which is just precious, retired. It could have been due to age or because of an episode where the king, who was close to another bout of madness, grabbed a Charlotte and she felt she lost the confidence of Prince George. Who's to say? I would also not put it past Prince George to blame the whole incident on the governess for not playing, paying close enough attention when that's really what he should have been doing as her father. Honestly, everything I've read about Prince George and Charlotte reads like one power move after the other concerning his daughter. When King George declared that he was going to take control of Charlotte's education, he and Prince George started fighting about that. It probably wasn't made any better by the fact that the king also suggested that the Princess of Wales be allowed to see her daughter. Imagine, a mother being able to see her child. They ended up reaching some sort of truce, and by about 1805, the king had a very large say in Charlotte's education. Because, again, keeping in mind, she is the only legitimate grandchild out of the 15 children that George III and Queen Charlotte had. So she is the focus of all the hopes, dreams, and aspirations for the future. An army of tutors was brought on, but keep in mind, Charlotte is very much the I do what I want when I want brand of princess, and she, quote, only learned what she wanted. One of the more telling events of Charlotte's childhood is when, at the age of 10 years old, she wrote a letter to her father, and part of it reads, Forgive me, my dearest papa, for writing to you when you have so much business, but I saw you so unwell last night that I could not help writing to see how you are. Believe me, my dearest papa, that my whole aim is to gain your regard and affection. If I should lose that, I shall be destitute of everything in this world most dear to me, but I trust that will never happen. Oh, how I wish I could see more of you, but I hope I shall in time. I am sensible how irksome it must be to you to see me, feeling I can be no companion to you to amuse you when in health and spirits. I am too young to soothe you when in affliction. Believe me, I am always truly happy when I do see you. We don't know if she ever received a reply from her father, but judging by the fact that her next act was to become so sad she wrote a will, it's probably likely her father never answered the letter. But don't worry. When he heard about the will, he decided that the staff caring for Charlotte was probably working to poison his daughter against him. There were a few staffing changes after this incident. I can't even fathom being a 10-year-old girl with everything in the world and the one thing you want is your dad's attention, and he's just not giving it to you because he doesn't think you worth his time. I'm sorry, but I'm throwing in my first fuck Prince George right here. I want to fast forward a few years in Charlotte's life. 
We're going to pick back up with her as a teenage princess, second in line to the throne and utterly ignored by her father and frequently kept away from her mother. In the time that's passed, her beloved grandfather hit his final bout of madness, and in 1811, her father was sworn in as the prince regent to rule in his father's place. Basically what this means is, if you're not familiar with the concept of a regency, it means that the person who is supposed to be in charge is either too young or incapable in some manner, and another person close to them, whether that be politically or in their family, is appointed to take their place and run run the show in their name. So this is where Prince George moves to be the Prince Regent, and we're going to refer to him as the Prince Regent in this section. So coming into her early teen years, Charlotte was noted for her, quote, physical maturity. And I'm going to throw a trigger warning in right here. It's going to be really, really uncomfortable to talk about some of this. By 14 or 15 years old, Charlotte was on the taller side. She was curvier and had light hair like her mother and beautiful blue eyes. One of her mother's ladies-in-waiting commented that, quote, she had all the fullness of a person of five and twenty. As she moved into her middle teens, Charlotte began to gain weight, and that was also commented on frequently. I've glossed over some more detailed descriptions of her because, ew, she's still a kid right now. I'm also going to make another side note here. At what point in the 200 plus years that have passed, or in the years to come, will it stop being okay to body shame and comment creepily upon the bodies of adolescent females? I digress. By this point, her reputation for being precocious had turned into one of downright, quote, undignified behavior. Even though she had the appearance of a grown woman by the age of 15, Her attitude and behavior, like that of most teenagers, was a different matter. We're going to blame it on an underdeveloped prefrontal cortex. Lady Charlotte Burry, her mother's lady-in-waiting, remarked that even though Charlotte was, quote, kind-hearted, clever, and enthusiastic, she could also be capricious, self-willed, and obstinate. I think the line that best sums it up is by the author Kate Williams in the book Becoming Queen Victoria, where she observes that Charlotte, quote, had the manners of her mother and the arrogance of her father. Teenage hormones, indignance, and a short temper seem to catapult Charlotte straight into scandal after scandal in her teenage years. Despite the strict, cloistered upbringing and neglect from her father, Charlotte seemed to have set on giving her dad a run for his money in the scandal department. You would think being forced to hang out with your grandmother and your spinster aunts all the time would bore a girl to tears, but you'd be wrong. You see, friend, we're forgetting some crucial details here. She's a princess, which means cousins are fair game in the romance market. Her uncle, the Duke of Clarence, had a mess of illegitimate children with his mistress, and one of them was one George Fitzclarence. Typically, if a king or another noble had illegitimate children, they would tack on like Fitz and some other name or title associated with the father to denote that that child was the progeny of the father. For instance, George Fitzclarence 
Fitz Clarence being his father's ducal title. Um, Henry VIII also did this with one of his illegitimate sons named Henry. He was called Henry Fitzroy. Fitz being son, Roy being king. But again, another historical side note. It seems Charlotte grew bored and developed a bit of an infatuation with her cousin, who was then quickly sent to join his regiment in Brighton. Charlotte was sad for about a minute before a new handsome dude crossed her path and landed Charlotte in her first decent scandal. When I say decent, I mean scandal worth noting. Like, I, th- I got the impression that the whole incident with her cousin George Fitzclarence was more of a, like, oh god, we can't let people outside of the family hear about that. But this next one was one where uh, things... Things got a little funny. So Lieutenant Charles Hess began flirting with Charlotte, and she began dressing herself up extra nice in the event that she came across him while out on her rides. Eventually, even Caroline, her mother, got involved in the relationship and helped Charlotte pass notes along to her new boyfriend. Charlotte's governess, Lady de Clifford, finally got wind of the whole situation and began to panic. Please keep in mind that Charlotte's father has dismissed staff person after staff person whose job it was to care for his daughter because he felt that they were trying to either poison her against him or they were trying to help her mother see her. Anyways, if I was Lady de Clifford, I would also be a little panicked. She begged Charlotte to give up the affair, which Charlotte did not take well. If anything, it escalated the situation. Caroline saw another way to get revenge against her husband in this whole matter, because, you know, children should be pawns in the middle of arguing parents. And Caroline began not only to actively encourage the relationship, but even helped to arrange meetings between her daughter and her little boyfriend, and allowed her to play fast and loose with her reputation keeping in mind that the two biggest duties of a noble or royal daughter at this time was to stay a virgin and to not get involved in anything that could call that reputation into question. And that is exactly what Princess Caroline was dealing with. Never mind that her daughter is the heir to the British throne. It gives me... It gives me the vapors to think about. So the juiciest part of the entire story is that the whole family seemed to be aware of the situation, except for the Prince Regent, and didn't do much of anything to stop it because George was being such a dickhead to his only child. They were literally like, well, she's having fun and she's not pregnant yet, so what could be the worst? But remember, Charlotte is of an age now. She is the ripe old age of 15 maybe 16 years old, and we're entering spinsterhood. She needs to get married. So, the older Charlotte gets, the bigger and more gutsy the fights between her and her father become, and one such onslaught became her marriage prospects. This is probably the most entertaining series of fights between the two of them. So the ongoing Napoleonic Wars turned turned in Britain's favor by 1813, And the Prince Regent decided it was time to turn his attention from that to securing an alliance 
with his best political asset, his daughter, the future Queen of England. The top contender, as far as Prince George and his advisors were concerned, was Williams, the hereditary Prince of Orange. Kate Williams has a rather humorous description of him in her book, describing him as a short, skinny, and ugly youth with buck teeth and wispy blonde hair and a diffident and indecisive character. The Prince of Orange gave Charlotte a bit of conflict. Marriage would get her away from her father and his nonsense, but an arranged marriage could be a disaster. I mean, the prime example that is staring us in the face is the marriage of her mother and father which was arranged, and they had never met each other before, and it was still technically on paper a marriage, but they spent all their time fighting, arguing, and insulting each other. Matters got increasingly murkier after the Prince Regent's birthday party when the father of her prospective husband and her own father got completely trashed to the point where Prince William of Orange, not the potential husband, his father, lost his coat and waistcoat, and the prince regent could barely speak. It was her first time meeting her potential father-in-law. Eventually, after a few rocky exchanges with her father, Charlotte and the Prince of Orange did meet, and she tentatively gave the go-ahead to begin marriage negotiations. Charlotte was adamant that she would not leave Britain and move to her husband's home. Ultimately, Charlotte signed her marriage contract on June 4th, 1814, and things seemed to be all systems go. And then she met someone. Enter Prince Leopold of Saxe-Coburg-Saalfeld. She met Prince Leopold as she bumped into him one evening and eventually invited him to come and visit her. Now, this was not a love at first sight situation. I definitely get the impression from this time in Charlotte's life that she was looking for any and all means to get out of the engagement with the Prince of Orange, who seemed to like to make a fool of himself in public. Another German prince caught her eye, and I believe that, finding herself in an unwelcome situation, she started fantasizing about being with this new man. Leopold just didn't measure up in the shadow of the unnamed German prince. Regardless, Leopold is on stage now, albeit in the wings, and waiting for his moment. One night, after a few glasses of wine at the opera, Leopold mustered up the courage to pay Charlotte a visit. He stayed for about 45 minutes. Wanting to make a good impression on her father, he immediately wrote a letter to the Prince Regent, apologizing if he had overstepped any boundaries. In yet another dumbass move, the Prince Regent basically forgot about the letter. Now, while all of this is happening, Charlotte was still wrapped up in the marriage contract to the Prince of Orange and getting more and more desperate to find herself a way out. The final straw for her was when, at a party with leading dignitaries, the prince, her potential husband this time, not her potential father-in-law, got absolutely hammered and rode around on top of a stagecoach. Like any smart child of divorced parents, even though her parents never really got divorced while she was alive, Charlotte decided to use the discord between her mother and father to her advantage. Her mother was against the match with the Prince of Orange, I guess because it was popular with Charlotte's father, among other reasons. And Charlotte seized this opportunity. I love this. I'm over here, like, applauding, saying, go, Charlotte, because 
anytime people have screwed you over repeatedly, they do not deserve kindness and compassion in those situations. And that may not be a popular thing for me to say, but I said what I said. I think this moment was an absolutely brilliant tactical move on Charlotte's part. She decided to write a letter to the Prince of Orange saying that she couldn't leave Britain and she expected to be allowed to receive formal visits to her mother. Since the prince definitely was her father's choice, I suspect she knew exactly which response she was going to get from him. He refused. She told him she had no other choice but to end the engagement. Then I'm afraid she got a little too bold and asked the prince to tell her father for her that the engagement was off. He refused again, so that left the task of telling the prince regent that her marriage was not going to be taking place. To say that the prince regent was fuming would be a drastic understatement. Basically, he told Charlotte that she was going to be sequestered away and only allowed visits from her grandmother. When Charlotte received this news, she panicked, sent for her bonnet, and slipped out the back door and went out into the street for the first time on her own. She did get lucky, and a kind bystander found her, helped her get a cab, and she promptly went to her mother's house. Her mother was out visiting a friend, but eventually returned to find Charlotte at her house. In the hullabaloo that followed, members of the Whig party and several members of the royal family showed up to try and sort the situation out. Charlotte's uncle, the Duke of Sussex, not related to Prince Harry, well... In something we can get into later, they are technically related, but he's not a direct descendant. Uh, Charlotte's uncle, the Duke of Sussex, even had a warrant to return her to her father by force if necessary. Y'all, this girl is 18 years old at this point and being shuttled back and forth like a toddler on dad's weekend. After a lot of round and round, Charlotte eventually agreed to return to her father's home, and when she did, she was basically put on house arrest. Her dad brought on a new staff, and all of her movements were reported to him. He didn't even allow her pen or paper to write with. While she's basically being kept in princess prison, Charlotte's mother decided it was an opportune moment to inform her daughter that she would be leaving to go live on the continent. So Princess Caroline is basically going to peace out and move to Europe. The prince regent had Charlotte move to Cranbourne House to keep a better eye on her, but her treatment was pretty unpopular with some members of her family. And remember, this is not a small family. Like, just in her father's immediate family, she has 12 aunts and uncles. Her father's brother, the Duke of Sussex, the one that had shown up with a warrant to bring her back by force, he even went so far as to question the prime minister about her treatment. So if this dude is saying this is a bit much you know, you know it's not good. He argued that since she was over 18, should be she should be allowed to move about freely and should probably also even have her own household and her own staff. Parliament did nothing about it. Things eventually began to calm down between Charlotte and the Prince Regent, and she was even allowed to travel a little bit to the seaside in the late summer slash early autumn of 1814. While she was there, however, she learned that her German prince, not Leopold, had a new girlfriend, and that she needed to rethink her marriage-slash-relationship plans. Now it's time for Leopold to shine. But we have to hear about the Prince of Orange one more time. 
The prince regent was still barking up that tree, and it basically took the whole royal family presenting a united front against the match to get him to drop the matter. Charlotte stood her ground in opposing the match, stating, No arguments, no threats shall ever bend me to marry the detested Dutchman. The detested Dutchman ended up marrying Grand Duchess Anna Palovna. Hope I said that right. If we know one thing about Princess Charlotte, it's that whatever she wants, she eventually gets. Except the love and affection of both of her parents. But, you know, at least during her lifetime. Charlotte wanted to choose her own husband, so she basically decided to focus her attention straight in Leopold's direction. And in true teenage girl fashion, she sent the 19th century equivalent of the do you think he likes me text to her friends to see what exactly Leo's intentions were for her. And Leo was still super into Charlotte, but since he was busy fighting with the Russians against Napoleon, he couldn't come back to Britain right away. The next person Charlotte had to get on board was old daddy dearest. Judging on how traumatic all of her interactions with her father had been up until this point concerning the men in her life, I applaud Charlotte for having the Lady Cajones to go up to her dad and ask him for formal permission to marry Leopold. He didn't say no, but used the turmoil between England and France on the continent as a reason to put off giving Charlotte a direct answer. Finally, though, he agreed to the match. In February of 1816, the Prince Regent invited Leopold to Brighton and gave him the requisite interrogation. And finally, Charlotte and Leopold were reunited. Charlotte was absolutely head over heels for Leopold. He was a breath of fresh air for her after having spent so much of her life penned up with only her aunts, grandmother, and servants for company her entire life. Finally, she had met someone in her life that was solely devoted to her and not to balancing the constant battles between her and her father. The lift in Charlotte's feelings flooded over into the family and finally over into the country as a whole. When the marriage was announced to the House of Commons, a great cheer went up. Shortly after, Leopold became a British citizen, receiving an allowance of £50,000 a year, and Parliament bought the couple Claremont House and gave them a stipend to help renovate and get set up as a married couple. Honestly, at this point, I start to get sad thinking about what happens to Charlotte next. She's had such a difficult time of things growing up with parents who hated each other and treated her like a pawn in all of their arguments. She was largely isolated and ignored, and now she's at this high point. She was about to be married to the man that she wanted to marry, have her own home and her own life, basically everything she ever wanted. And if we could just like pause her life at this little point in time and say she lived happily ever after that would be stupendous but alas dear listeners that is not what happened the wedding date was set for may 2nd 1816 people set up outside of carlton house all day hoping to get a good spot to watch for the couple on the wedding day leopold arrived at two o'clock in the afternoon to see his bride and the crowd went absolutely wild when he drove by charlotte spent the day sitting for a portrait and dining with her aunts and the queen. Once dinner was over, she was dressed for her wedding. Charlotte's dress was an elaborate affair and cost close to 10,000 pounds. Keeping in mind, this is in 1816 money. 
The wedding went well, but in true Charlotte fashion, when the vows came to the section where Leopold promised to endow her with all his worldly goods, she could be heard giggling because he was broke and she was not. The couple went to their honeymoon at the Duke of York's home in Surrey and shortly after began their married life. One of the amazing things about their relationship is that Leopold had a very calming effect on Charlotte. Her life had been in so much turmoil up until this point and Leopold seemed to bring peace and stability to her. She was noted to be more mellow and calm in her demeanor and anytime she seemed to get overly excited about something, Leopold would speak gently to her and help her rein it in. Charlotte, I believe, found the positive attention and affirmation she had been looking for throughout her entire youth. In June, Charlotte canceled her trip to the theater due to illness, and it later came out that she had actually suffered a miscarriage. She recovered well enough, and the couple soon settled into their new home at Claremont House. Charlotte even ended up skipping the ball her father threw for her 21st birthday because she just wanted to spend time with her husband in their new home. And by May of 1817, Leopold had happy news for the Prince Regent. Charlotte was pregnant again, just in time to celebrate their first wedding anniversary. The country was absolutely thrilled with the news. People were even taking bets on the sex of the baby. But the pregnancy seemed to be incredibly rough on Charlotte. She was frequently fatigued and didn't exercise enough. She gained weight rapidly and her doctors put her on a diet in hopes of restricting the size of her baby at birth. Additionally, she also appeared to be in low spirits, and even depressed at points. Now, I've never had a baby of my own, and given where this story goes, I think we have a tendency to lose what may be normal to what may also be a symptom of what ended up happening. But in any case, people were worried about Charlotte, her husband, her doctors, her aunts, everyone. The baby was predicted to be born sometime around mid-October of that year, and Claremont House began preparing for the rival of the new prince or princess. But October creeped by, and as it came to a close, the baby had still not arrived, and the concern in the family grew. The queen even noted that Charlotte's figure was, quote, so immense that I could not help being uneasy to a considerable degree. On November 3rd, Charlotte and Leopold returned from a walk, and as she was removing her cloak, her labor pains began. Things began hopeful enough, but Charlotte was in for a long and difficult labor. The hours ticked by and it looked that at one point intervention may be necessary. At the time that was considered, she'd been without sleep for nearly 36 hours and hadn't eaten in over a day. Pair that with the fact that she'd been on a near starvation diet for most of her pregnancy and accepted that 19th century medicine included bleeding, it's no wonder that Charlotte was absolutely exhausted. So we're talking hunger, we're talking fatigue, we're talking blood loss here, because frankly, having a baby is a bloody affair, and 19th century medicine was like, oh, you're not well? Let's cut a hole in you and bleed some of your blood out and see if that helps. The problem was that the doctors didn't want to risk any kind of intervention. Charlotte wasn't the wife of a king that could easily be replaced. She was the only legitimate heir to the throne and was hopefully about to give birth to the next heir. So we're risking two generations of potential rulers to the British throne. 
The stakes were high, and the doctors decided that the best course of action was inaction. They literally decided not to do a thing. Finally, at midday on November 5th, she delivered her baby, a large, handsome, stillborn son. Charlotte was weak, but seemed to take the news well. And well, folks, if you're squeamish, I would skip ahead a bit because what happens next is both really gross and very tragic. Charlotte's uterus was still incredibly swollen after delivery, and her doctors decided that instead of waiting for the afterbirth to pass naturally, they were going to go in after it and remove it themselves. Keeping in mind, the idea that germs cause disease is not even a thing yet, and washing your hands isn't standard medical practice. These men are plunging their dirty hands into her already traumatized body to remove the afterbirth. Again, I'm going to give a disclaimer that if you are squeamish or you do not do well with blood or descriptions of gore, this is probably not the section for you to be listening to. When a placenta detaches from a uterus, it's basically leaving an open wound inside of your womb. And these guys are sticking their dirty hands up in there. And, um... We're done being gross. Once the extraction was completed, they finally allowed the poor woman to rest and eat. The house quieted down around 11 o'clock that night. Leopold, devastated and exhausted, took an opiate to help him sleep and went to bed. But a little over an hour later, Charlotte began violently vomiting. She quieted down and then began clutching her belly in pain. The midwife sent for the doctors, and when one of them, Sir Richard Crawford, arrived, he found Charlotte cold to the touch, her pulse rapid, she was bleeding profusely, and struggling to breathe. They tried to wake Leopold, but they had difficulty getting him to cooperate. Meanwhile, Charlotte was having convulsions and grasping for the hand of her husband's friend, Dr. Stockmar. They have me tipsy, she told him. The others had plied her with brandy and wine to help rouse her. Because getting somebody who has suffered immense blood loss drunk seems like a sound medical decision. Stockmar left the room to go get Leopold when Charlotte crawled out, Stocky, Stocky. And when he returned, he noticed that she was quieter, but her breath had rattled and her hands had grown cold. She died before Leopold could even get to her. The death of Charlotte touched all parts of the country. Businesses closed for two weeks. The Royal Exchange and the dockyards did as well. Houses of worship planned special services for her. The Prince Regent and Princess Caroline, I think, finally realized the gravity of everything they had lost. The prince was so devastated and distraught by the death of his daughter, he was noticed to be prostrate with grief and unable to attend her funeral. When Princess Caroline heard the news of her daughter from a courier, she fainted. Our old friend, the Prince of Orange, burst into tears when he heard the news, and his wife ordered the ladies of her court to dress in mourning for the lost princess. Leopold, it goes without saying, was deeply affected by the loss of his wife. He would remain single for the next 15 years of his life, and when he finally did marry and have a family, his youngest daughter would be named in honor of his dear Charlotte. When Charlotte died, the problems that were to have been solved by her birth 21 years earlier were ripped wide open. Her grandfather had no legitimate grandchildren to continue the line of Hanoverians, 
and there was little possibility of the prince regent and his his estranged wife having another child together. In the simplest terms, the death of Charlotte opened the path that would lead to Victoria, and ultimately many events that would end up shaping the course of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And I want to note one more thing here. Just because the end of her life was tragic does not mean that her life as a whole was a tragedy. There were parts that were sad, and where, if I could reach through time, I'd sit with that lonely little girl who just wanted to see her parents and have their love and approval and tell her she'd find that eventually. She was vivacious and wild. She charmed those she met. She was well-loved and well-regarded. Those things, to me, are not the signs of a tragic life. And that is the end of our coverage of Charlotte Augusta of Wales. So I'm just going to put a list right here of some general um, resources that I consulted while I was researching um, Charlotte's life. She was one of those, I don't know how many people go through like an obsession period as a kid where they hyperfixate on different periods of history. I mean, I was definitely like an Anastasia and... A Titanic girly at one point, but my obsession with Charlotte started from reading about Queen Victoria. And I learned the most about Charlotte from the book Becoming Victoria by Kate Williams. So that book is split into two parts. The first half is Charlotte's life, and the second half is the first 20 years or so of Victoria's reign, which is a really great book. It reads very much like a narrative. I I learned a lot from I also consulted the website of the Royal Collection Trust. They had a lot of great information and pictures about Princess Charlotte. The National Portrait Gallery of the United Kingdom had some great online resources. Um, the Victoria and Albert Museum had pictures of some of the artifacts that either belonged to Charlotte or members of her family, and those were cool to look at. I also consulted the Wikipedia article on Charlotte's life. I don't think Wikipedia as a resource is inherently bad. And I'm putting on my English teacher hat for a second and saying that as far as a broad overview of topics or events goes, I felt like it was very helpful. Would I consider it like the greatest resource to use all the time? Probably not, but there's still a lot of helpful information there. So short answer is don't knock Wikipedia. When we come back next time, we'll discuss Victoria and the aftermath of the loss of Charlotte. Victoria, who is now Great Britain's second longest reigning monarch, defined an entire era and saw the transformation of Britain into a global empire. But for now, thank you for joining me for the Broad Chronicles. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, please reach out to our Instagram page or our TikTok or our email. Everything is under the Broad Chronicles. Until next time.